0: Good morning. So I feel like have you had a good meal already? Don't you like a Sunday, like from worship to um, what Jill shared to what Steve just shared? Um, you know, actually, we didn't coordinate. But actually, so much of what's already been said this morning is the substance of the preach. And I love it when that happens. Um, and so I'm really, I'm excited, actually, to see what God has in store this morning, and I hope that, yeah, we leave here encouraged, excited. So we're going to pick up um, in Acts, as Steve said. We've been in Acts for the last few weeks. We've got quite a hefty portion of Scripture this morning. So it's Acts 11, verse 19, all the way through 13, verse 8. So a couple of chapters. And um, so you can follow along in your Bibles, because I am actually going to make us read a lot of it, okay? Okay. And so, just to help you, because, you know, we don't have three hours, I've done the kind of edited highlights package, which I'm going to put up on the screen. Um, so, you can follow along. If you're on the screen and you see three dots, that tells you that I've, that's where I've cut something out, okay? Because I want us to just have the narrative flow of what happens in these, um, in these three chapters. So, let's read. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So Peter was kept in prison. that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. That's quite a passage of scripture. Um, and I want to encourage you to spend some time with it this week because there really is so much in there and so many great insights. But I'm going to just share a couple of things that really uh, stand out for me as, I, as I've been wrestling with this. So the first thing whoops, there you go, is that nothing can stop the spread of the gospel or thwart God's kingdom purposes for our lives. So at the beginning of Acts 12, things are looking pretty bleak. I can see better without my glasses. It's amazing. So things are pretty bleak, right? James is dead. The church is being persecuted. People have been scattered. Peter's in prison, and not just any prison, right? It's maximum security prison. If you read it, there's 16 guards guarding him. And our bad guy, Herod, is basking in his popularity and his power. And from the the perspective of the church, things are pretty dire, But by the end of the chapter, Peter's free, having been freed from an angel, no less. That's a bit of a plot twist. The gospel's being preached to Jews and Gentiles alike, and our bad guy has been eaten by worms and died. And the gospel is being shared, and the church is multiplying. And that's quite a reversal of fortunes. And what we see, not just in this story, but I think as we read our Bibles and we track The story of the people of God through the ages, we see that there's nothing that stops the spread of the gospel or that will thwart God's purposes for our lives. And Isaiah 42, oh sorry, Isaiah 42 verse 14 tells us that, right? The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed it, so it will happen. And that should be such a source of encouragement to us. One commentator puts it this way, the gospel is unstoppable. If you oppose the gospel, you may temporarily win, but you will finally lose and lose big. If you stand for the gospel, you may temporarily lose, but you will finally win and win big. And we've seen that already in Acts, right? When Gamaliel, in Acts 5, stands up before the Sanhedrin, he, he says exactly the same thing. He says to them, if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting God. And yet I'm sure for the early church and for Peter, certainly at the start of Acts chapter 12, it probably didn't seem quite so certain or quite so clear. So chapter 12 actually reminds me a little bit of a, a great action movie. Right? Every great story typically involves a bunch of ordinary people. They're usually flawed in some way, facing some sort of challenge or threat. And if the movie's any good, we as the audience are kind of sitting on the edge of, of our seats, holding our breath, because we're not quite sure how it's going to turn out. Right? And we're kind of waiting. They're struggling. And just when it seems like things are impossible, something happens, usually something unexpected To save the day and then we have this happy ending and what keeps us on the edge of our seats in those movies is we're not quite sure how it's going to turn out and so it may have felt a little bit like that I think for the early church certainly at the start of chapter 12 right they're mourning the death of James now Peter another one of their leaders is in jail facing death it seems pretty bleak and so they gather and they are praying earnestly and asking God to intervene and he does. And he does it in a way that they don't expect, certainly not in a way that they imagine. And I think that's the second big principle we see, which we see throughout scripture, that God is able to do immeasurably more than we hope, ask, or imagine. So I don't know what they were praying for or asking God to do, But it seems that whatever they did pray, they never imagined that God would free Peter immediately in the dead of night. And we know that because when Peter shows up and knocks on the door, they don't believe Rhoda when she says he's here. First they tell her, you're out of your mind. And then when she's persistent, they go, no, no, it's probably his angel. I mean, just think about that. They're far more comfortable with the idea that there's an angel at the door than that God has freed Peter from jail right? Because their minds cannot comprehend or imagine that God would be able to set Peter free in the middle of the night from a maximum security jail. But praise God is not limited by our imagination. And I am so challenged by that in my life. I'm so aware that when I pray sometimes, when I'm facing a tough time and I'm asking God for help, I've got an idea of of what the solution would look like or how I would like it to work out. I need to be stretched in my imagination, right? I need to think bigger, dream bigger because of who God is. And so God intervenes, and in this case, he clearly does way more than they had dared ask or imagine. So I think as we read the story of Peter's rescue, we see these two truths being built into the DNA of the early church, that nothing can stop the spread of the gospel or thwart God's kingdom purposes, and that God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And so what does that mean for us, right? Well, I think that should give us incredible confidence because we already know how the movie ends, right? We've got the word of God and we've got the... The benefit of hindsight, of being able to look back at the story of the people of God as it's written and recorded in the Bible time and time again. And every time we read that story, it affirms for us the faithfulness of God to bring his purposes to pass and to intervene in impossible situations in ways that we don't hope or imagine. And Paul records this, right? So Romans eight twenty eight, he says, We know, we know. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And later in Ephesians, one of my favorites, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory. And Paul writes those two verses much later than where we are now in Acts 12. Right at this point in Acts 12, Paul's just been saved. He's still just telling people about what happened on the road to Damascus. Okay? But when he writes these letters later to the Romans and to the church in Ephesus, and he, he writes these truths, these principles, it's born out of his lived experience of what he's seen happen, not just in, in his life, but in the life of the church. Right? On top of that, we know he was a scholar of the Old Testament. And so he knows the story of the people of God. He summarizes some of that in Hebrews 11. Great chapter. Definitely you want to read that and spend some time in it. But as he looks back at the story of the people of God, what does he see? He sees this Abraham who had this promise that he would be the father of many nations. And yet circumstances, he was old and his wife appeared to be barren. And yet what happens? God brings it to pass. He talks about the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt to the Promised Land, and what happens? They confront the Red Sea. It seems impossible. What does God do? Parts the Red Sea. It's the story of Joshua, right? Who's commanded to march his army around Jericho, and then the walls will fall. That just seems crazy, and yet God does it. David facing Goliath. Every single one of those stories that he he reaffirms and describes in Hebrews eleven. Every single one of them tell us that no matter what circumstances look like, what God has purposed, he will bring to pass, and he often does it in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. Every time Peter stands, to, stands up to preach in Acts, what does he do? He tells the story of what he's witnessed, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus being raised from the dead, something that human minds could not conceive, could not imagine. And we, this, we see the same when Stephen stands up before the Sanhedrin and they ask him to give, a, give account. How does he respond? He responds by telling the stories of the heroes of our faith, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David. Again, what is he doing? Reaffirming over and over again through the stories and lived experiences of those who've gone before that God is great, he's able, and his purposes will prevail. And so I think these two principles are so important. And as we see them being built into the DNA of the early church, I think there's something for us to catch in that, right? That that needs to be embedded in our DNA, individually and collectively. Because I think if, if that is built into our DNA, if this works, ah, there we go, it's going to change the way we think about our present suffering, So Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So is that wishful thinking on his part? Is he just trying to write some nice, airy, fairy statement about what he hopes might be true? No, it's born out of lived experience, right? Not just his own story, but what he's seen happen in the early church and what he sees in the documented history of the people of God through the ages. This is stuff we can bank our lives on. And so when he offers us a definition of faith in Hebrews 11, he says this, right? We know this. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. He's reminding us that we can be confident in what we hope for, even if we can't yet see it or experience it, because we know how the story's going to end. And the story ends not just that Jesus will return and we'll be with him for eternity. That's awesome. But part of it is there's so much documented historical evidence and proof in the Bible of God intervening in ways that his people never imagined to make sure that what he purposed came to be. And that should give us assurance. So if we're facing tough challenges and we can't see a way through, if things seem hopeless, the story of the people of God tells us that God will work it out and he'll probably do it in a way that we can't imagine, but his purposes are not going to be hindered. So I've really been challenged in the last year to ask myself whether I've really believed the stories of those who've gone before. Do I really believe that God parted the Red Sea and that Moses led the Israelites through? Do I really believe that Joshua marched the army around Jericho and then the walls fell down? Do I really believe that David killed Goliath with a stone and a slingshot? Do I really believe God rescued Peter from jail twice using angels? Do I really believe that? Or somehow have I relegated those to nice Bible stories for kids' bedtime? Because if I really believe that God parted the Red Sea, that he caused the walls of Jericho to fall, that he helped a shepherd boy kill a giant, that he rescued Peter from jail twice, that he raised Jesus from the dead, if I really believe that stuff, then I should be able to hold fast to the assurance of what that history tells me. There's nothing that is impossible for God. And if he's shown up for people who've gone before me, there's no reason to expect that he won't show up for me. He may not show up the way I think he should, and he most likely won't show up the way I imagine. But again, praise God that he's not limited by my imagination. So his story is our story. A few weeks ago, Brandon reminded us that God invites us into his story, not the other way around right? We don't invite God into our story. We get to partner with God in his story, and the glory is his, and that's important, right? This is the mistake that Herod makes when he addresses the people at the end of chapter 12, and the people say, this is, you know, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. We're told that immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he died, and God's clear. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. And so, yes, his story is our story, but let's be clear that the glory is his. And there's power in story, right? So his story is our story, and we get to tell that story. And I want to encourage you this morning that storytelling is a really powerful evangelism tool. We see it in Acts, right? Every time Uh, Peter stands up to preach he tells the same story and his story is that he has been a witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus and he always says like I can't help but tell you what I've seen and heard what I've experienced so Peter tells his story and people come to faith there's no doctrine here there's no heavy theological debate that's going on that happens later when Paul starts to write and formalize things but at this moment in the life of the church Peter tells his story, and people come to faith. And that's because stories are powerful. People can argue with your doctrine or your theology, but they can't argue with your story. And our story is the next chapter in the ongoing story of the people of God. It's being added, right? And then lastly, the power in your story is the power of our story. You want to say that a little bit differently? Our individual story is part of our collective story. And our collective story shapes our individual story. So I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible and I read these stories about the heroes of the faith, my story sometimes feels pretty insignificant by comparison. Like, I haven't been rescued by angels from jail. I haven't parted the Red Sea. You know, I just... I haven't done anything that's quite that bold and dramatic. And I think sometimes in church, we look at others who seem to have these amazing testimonies or these dramatic conversion experiences, and we feel insignificant in comparison. But I think there's a really important principle that we see playing out in Acts chapter 12 that we need to grab hold of. So there's no doubt that Peter has this amazing testimony, right? He's been rescued twice now. Once in Acts 5 and once in Acts 12. He's been rescued twice from jail by an angel. Oops. Oh, my word. Well, it's fine. But here's the key thing. Peter's story is also the story of the church who were earnestly praying for him. I think that's so important for us to catch. Peter's story, as amazing and dramatic as it is, is as much his story as it is the story of a church who were praying for him. Do we know their names? No. We know they were at Mary's house, and we know there was a servant called Rhoda. But we don't know anything else about the people who were in the room. They're nameless. But Peter's miraculous rescue is part of their faith story of seeing God answer prayer. Their story is part of of Peter's story. And so while Peter's got this amazing testimony of God rescuing him from jail— They've got this amazing testimony of how God answered their prayers and rescued Peter. And so the power of Peter's story is the power of their story. And vice versa, right? When we read at the start, we see that Peter's in jail, facing imminent death. And what's he doing? He's asleep. I don't think I would be asleep the night before facing potential execution. But I imagine that part of that peace and that rest is precisely because he had a church who were praying peace and rest and grace for him. I suspect that many of us feel much more like the nameless, faceless members of the prayer group as opposed to being someone visible and known like Peter. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that our contribution to advancing the kingdom or the story we have to tell is any less important Powerful than Peter's. So, one of my favorite examples of this is Albert McCacken. Okay, my life group's not allowed to answer this. Who knows who Albert McCacken is? Who knows who Billy Graham is? We all know Billy Graham, right? Incredibly gifted preacher responsible for leading millions of people to the Lord. Albert McCacken was a farm worker on the Graham family farm. And he was the person who invited Billy Graham and then drove him to the revival meeting where Billy Graham gave his life to the Lord. So the power of Billy Graham's story is the power of Albert McCacken's story. By being faithful to do what God told him to do, Albert McCacken is as much part and parcel of the story of the millions of lives that came to faith as Billy Graham is. Pete talked to us last week about this, about the enablers in the faith in the early church, people who were obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. They just played their part, and often we don't know much about them, but their story is critical to the spread of the gospel. So I think about Cornelius and Ananias, Aeneas, or even as I went back and read it, the nameless church members who helped Paul escape when the rulers of the day wanted to kill him. Their story of obedience and their experience of God's faithfulness is critical to the growth of the early church. It's as critical as the stories of Peter, Paul and Stephen. They were enabled by the faith of these others doing what they were called to do. So Peter's story is also the story of a church who were earnestly praying for him. And that's why being part of authentic community and doing life together is so important. Are doing life together, praying for each other, whatsapping people when they're sick, showing up with meals, journeying through the good and the bad. Even if we aren't one of those people who has the dramatic, amazing testimony of being rescued by angels or slaying dragons and giants, maybe not dragons, we still get to experience the goodness and faithfulness of God through answered prayer through what he does in the lives of those that we support, we pray for, we take meals to, we give shelter to. Every time we give money to support mission organizations, for example, we are as much part and parcel in advancing the kingdom as the people on the front line. And so those seemingly small, invisible acts of obedience are as critical to advancing the kingdom as the more visible ones. And when Peter shows up at the prayer meeting and they finally let him in, we read that they are so excited they can barely contain themselves, right? They're noisy. They're so noisy that he has to actually motion to them because they can't hear him, right? He has to motion to them to settle down and be quiet so he can tell them what's happened. Because, boy, do they have a story to tell. It's different than Peter's. They weren't the ones rescued from jail by an angel, but their story is one of God being faithful to hear and answer prayer. And so their faith experience is galvanized by what God does in Peter's life and the role they've played in standing in the gap, even though we never know their names. So Peter's story is also the story of a church who were earnestly praying for him. And so the power of your story is the power of our story. Amen? So I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know what challenge you might be facing, but here's what I do know, having read this. God's purposes and plans for our lives and for our church will prevail. He said so, and the history of the people of God bears this out time and time again. We serve a God who shows up and does more than we could ever hope or imagine. And so we can be confident in what we hope for, we can be bold in what we ask for, and we can have assurance about that, which we do not see, because the Bible shows us this again and again. And if God's shown up for people who've gone before us, he's going to do it again, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. It's his story, and it's his glory, right? So I've said a lot. What we're going to do is just spend a few moments in reflection before we close with a song. I'm going to invite the band to come up and start playing. I'm going to invite the rest of us just to remain seated. Maybe close your eyes where you are and maybe just take a moment to reflect on what stood out for you this morning. So let's just quiet ourselves before God and just reflect. What has God been saying to you this morning? What's resonated with you? So I think God wants to encourage us and reassure us this morning by reminding us of his faithfulness through the ages. So maybe take a moment to do business with God. If you find yourself facing a challenging situation, then take this moment to acknowledge and thank him for his power and his purpose and his ability to do more than you hope or ask for or imagine. For others in the room, maybe you've been feeling like your story is insignificant. Maybe you've been feeling invisible. And I believe God would want to encourage you and remind you that your story is powerful. Your story and your contribution matters as much as anybody else. Don't let comparison and self-doubt rob you of making your contribution. And for others, maybe it's a moment to thank God for what He's done and to rejoice in answered prayer. So just take a few moments, reflect, talk with God, let's not rush, and then I'll pray and we'll end. Father, we want to thank you that you are a good God, that you are a good, good Father. And this morning, Father, we want to thank you for reminding us of your faithfulness through the ages, Lord. Father, thank you that your purposes, what you have purpose, will come to pass. God, that what you have planned, you will see to completion. And God, we freshly just acknowledge this morning and we're so grateful that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we hope, ask, or imagine. And so, Father, we ask you, stretch our imagination, stretch our faith. But God, we are grateful. We are grateful that we are invited into your story. And this morning, we want to give you glory for that. We thank you that we are part of the story of the people of God. God, this morning we just freshly submit ourselves to that. We freshly say, God, we're here. Use us. Help us to make our contribution, whether it's stacking chairs, whether it's preaching, whether it's serving coffee. Thank you, God, that every story matters, that every story is powerful, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name.